Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Mary Catherine McDonald, PhD. Mary Catherine, who is called by many of her students and clients, MC, is a research professor and life coach who specializes in the psychology and philosophy of trauma. She's been researching, lecturing, and publishing on the neuroscience, psychology, and lived experience of trauma since completing her PhD in 2016. She's published two academic books and many research papers, and is the creator of a trauma-based curriculum that serves previously incarcerated people and veterans. With Sounds True, Mary Catherine McDonald is the author of a new book. It's called Unbroken, The Trauma Response is Never Wrong, and Other Things You Need to Know to Take Back Your Life. MC is an unusual person. In her own words, she's an academic who's gone rogue. My experience is that she's a deeply feeling person, a deeply caring person, someone who wants to take research and neuroscience out of ivory towers and bring it directly to all of us so it can be helpful and applied to the suffering that we're facing. Here's my conversation with the very brilliant and helpful Mary Catherine McDonald on why the trauma response is never wrong. To begin, MC, and as a way to better introduce you to our listeners here of Insights at the Edge, tell us a little bit about how trauma research became the focus, really, of your professional life. It's a great question. I um, It was actually kind of an accident. I was studying identity, and there was this huge debate in the philosophy of psychology at the time about narrative and whether or not and to what extent human beings' identity owes itself to a story or conforms to story form. And I felt very strongly that we are constructed psychologically through a story and that we have a narrative arc, both for the events in our day-to-day lives, but also our larger our larger story arc, our larger life path. And um, I was meeting a ton of resistance to that. There was this argument on the other side that we are not narrative, nor should we try to be, that this is actually harmful. And so I wanted to look for case studies that would show that there's a narrative there, even if we don't 
identify with it or notice it necessarily, but that we are constructed in some way by a story. And I reached for trauma as that case study because every account of trauma that I encountered in popular culture and, and anywhere in my own life and in, in the lives of friends and family members, people talked about the narrative shattering, um, that they had this expectation, this story about the life, about, about their life, about the way that the world works that got shattered by the trauma. And so I reached for that as a case study and thought sort of hilariously like, oh, this is, I'm just going to have this little foray into <laughs> trauma research and then come back and use it as a case study and move on. And um, I fell down a rabbit hole and then I moved in. Now, in your own life, trauma is also part of your own formation, the narrative mm -hmm. that formed you. Would you say your own personal narrative was shattered in a certain kind of way? And if so, how? Oh, absolutely. So the the most I had some early life trauma and then the but the biggest shattering experience was the sudden death of my father in 2005. He was very healthy, we thought. Um it turned out he had been uh, there had been a um a late stage colon cancer that was growing for a long time that we were unaware of. He didn't have symptoms and he went from kind of being at work and living normal life to being dead within 10 days. He died on Christmas morning. And my dad was one of these people, I think everyone says this about people in their lives who have died, but he really was one of these people who is, you know, an angel on earth. Everyone would say, would say that. He was an amazing presence and a very good person by all accounts. And his death exploded every structure of meaning that I had. And I didn't have any idea that I even had those structures of meaning. But, you know, you operate on these beliefs that... Um, bad things don't happen to good people. And then something bad happens to the best person you know. And all of a sudden, you don't know what to believe. And, you know, it's shattered in probably a thousand different ways because there was also the story that I was telling about how my father would be present in the rest of my life. He would be along for the ride. He was only 62 when he died. So, you know, I thought I have at least another 20 years of my father in this life and that shattered as well. And then you have these <laughs> ideas about what grief might look like that shatter as you move into it. So um, those are just a couple of examples, but absolutely, it felt like there was this map of the world that I had been drawing for, you know, my whole 24 years and someone just, you know, ran in the house, grabbed it from the wall and smashed it into a million pieces and I had to figure out where am I? Where am I going? And how do you, you know, make a path? You know, MC, I think you're such an interesting writer and professor because you have this academic training. You have a PhD. You've studied the neuroscience of trauma deeply. And yet you yourself are also a brilliant storyteller. And Thank in you. Unbroken, you draw on composite stories of people that you've worked with. You draw on your own history and you really present a view of trauma that I think is so important for us to appreciate. And you write about it as we need to update mm -hmm. what we understand about trauma, that many of our notions are outdated mm -hmm. and that this updated view is going to give us more empowerment in relationship to trauma. So let's start there, digging in a bit. What is it in our perspective about trauma that you think needs to be updated? 
Oh, so many things. But I think the they all sort of source back to this fundamental belief that trauma equals weakness. That if you have been traumatized, if you've been through a stressor and the result has been, you know, traumatic symptoms or you've struggled with that, that there's something wrong with you. And this comes from a very outdated understanding of trauma that, you know, stretches all the way back to the 1800s. And the reason I talk about updating the definition is because there are remnants of that, that old definition around. We still use language of weakness. We still have societal judgment about people who have trauma. And what we know now, after 150 years of study and the advent of technology that enables us to look at the brain and understand the trauma responses in the body, what we know to be true now is that the trauma response is the body's natural response to threat. It is not a sign of weakness or disorder. And I, if I have one goal in life, it's to make sure that that message gets out there. And how did we get this notion that it's a sign of weakness, a sign that something's gone, like there's something wrong with me, that I'm having this mm -hmm. level of response to XYZ event? I think a lot of it had to do with the way that we were studying trauma. So the history of the study of trauma is fascinating in, in the way that it began and the different sort of peaks and valleys that it's had in those last, you know, 150 years. But when, when we started looking at trauma, all we knew was that um, we had a, a subset of the population that showed up with symptoms that didn't respond to treatment and didn't seem to make sense given the current psychological, you know, theoretical construct. And so um, the belief then was if you take that piece of the population in comparison to the rest of the population, the, these symptoms must be because of some disorder or weakness within those people. And so, and that in, you know, from a theoretical perspective makes sense, right? Like let's figure out what is causing these symptoms in this group of people. And um, as we went on, we realized that it wasn't that it was something wrong with those people. It was that what they had been exposed to had created this response in their body that was very normal and natural and adaptive and important. Um, but we didn't have any of that scientific knowledge at the time. So all we had is hypothesis. I think sometimes people forget that science and in, in particular psychology and psychiatry work on hypothesis until we have knowledge. And then even then, that knowledge often gets overturned by future knowledge. And so what was true in the 1800s is not true anymore. But there's no way to go back and sort of like select all and delete those things. We inherit those definitions and we continue to use them. And so we still carry around this belief that if you're traumatized, yeah, it might be because you went through something difficult. We'll allow you that. But also, it's probably because you have some inherent flaw. So I think people can appreciate there's intelligence in the trauma response. This is my body, my psyche, my mind responding intelligently. But it doesn't feel very intelligent when the trauma response is something that we feel stuck in many decades after the event. And in fact, it's causing us a lot of suffering. So maybe you can help us understand that because it's like, oh, I'm stuck in trauma. And yet here MC is saying there's nothing wrong with the trauma response. Well, it right. sure feels wrong. It, it does. And it causes all sorts of disorder in your life and pain. And I don't mean to minimize that at all. Um, 
I think when we understand the the miracle of human adaptation, we as biological beings adapt all the time, all day, every day. We're adapting to the temperature in the room, to the dynamic conversation that we're having, um, to our levels of you know, fullness and thirst and all that kind of stuff. And for the most part, our adaptations work for us. And the thing that happens with trauma is that when we have um, a stressor that is sufficiently overwhelming, sometimes we get stuck in the trauma response. And this is what causes the, you know, chronic symptoms of stress and hypervigilance that we see in PTSD and CPTSD. Um, The thing that we're missing is the idea that So those symptoms are not a sign that the trauma response is wrong. The symptoms are a sign that your body is stuck in overdrive. The answer to that is not to shame the system or to say, you know, that you are weak because you got stuck here. The answer is to unstick yourself and readapt to the world again, which I don't think we talk about enough because I don't think people really understand how possible it is to recalibrate the nervous system after it has gotten stuck. Okay, so we're going to have to go into your perspective on getting unstuck and Mm -hmm. then recalibrating. So tell me more in terms of your understanding about both of those very important ideas. Okay, so can we start with memories and why they get stuck? So if you think about your brain... Um, I always say that I would, I, you know, if I won the lottery, I want to make a Pixar movie just about memory because it's so fascinating and so poorly understood by, you know, most of society. Um, if you think of, there's a part of your brain called the hippocampus, which you can think of as a huge file room. And all of your memories are stored in file folders that have narrative content, emotional content, and some sort of like meaning tag so that your brain can find the information quickly. And the reason your brain does that is because it's trying to adapt to the ever-changing outside world and keep you alive. So the better you can remember things, the more likely it is that you'll survive. Oh, that mushroom is the poisonous one. That one is the safe one. That's really important to file away. And so when you have, um, so that filing system is running all the time. And when we have kind of normal things going on in our lives, we have full access to the file room. All the workers are in there. They're doing their job. Everything that happens to us is getting put in a correct file and labeled correctly and all that. When we have something that is wildly overwhelming, our brain adapts to that by taking some of the energy from the file room and sending it somewhere else. Again, that's adaptive and that's designed for us to be more likely to survive but the upshot, or the downshot, you may say, is that the, the file folder doesn't get organized in the way that it would with your other memories. And the little, the little people in the file room, if you can imagine the little Pixar animation, don't like a disorganized file. And so every time they see something in your perceptual you know, horizon that looks like something from that file, they see that as an opportunity to push the file to the front of your mind so you can have the chance to organize it. The problem is that your the, the, the alarm system part of your brain is recognizing that material as you know a dangerous mushroom, a fearful thing, and setting off the alarm system just from the memory, not even from the re-experience of it. And so a critical part of this process of recalibration is reorganizing the memory file so that you have a coherent narrative in the file, beginning, middle, and end, appropriate emotional content, 
and a tag of meanings that allows you to put the file away in the larger sort of story of your life or in the larger file room. And so the in, in the kind of acute phases of healing from trauma, a lot of the work that's going to happen is going to be about figuring out what's in the file folder. You can imagine like a bunch of post-it notes that have random words on them. What do they mean? How are you going to tell a story about them? How are you going to feel through some of the overwhelming emotional content? And how are you going to put that in a file cabinet that makes sense? When that piece is, you know, sort of integrated, when the memory gets integrated and looks like the rest of your memories, you also have, and you can do this simultaneously, I'm presenting this as if it's an arc, but you can do it at the same time. You also have to deal with the, the somatic reality, which is that your body was along for the ride. The, the trauma didn't just happen to your psyche. It didn't just happen to your memory. It also happened to your body. And so um, another part of the recalibration process that's really critical is teaching your body that you are safe in the world again and with other people. And so when you can complete that process, which, you know, I think talking about it in terms of completion is a little bit misguided because it's likely a lifelong path. Um, you can, what you will experience is a recalibrated nervous system that no longer responds inappropriately to benign stimuli in your environment. Does that make sense? It does. And it, it was a, a powerful explanation. Let's use your own situation as illustration, mm. if that's okay, because mm -hmm. you told the story of your father's sudden death, quick death, yeah. 10 days, and he was just 62. So we could call that wildly overwhelming, mm -hmm. uh, to use the language that you used with disorganized memories. What was the process for you that allowed you to make it, quote unquote, look like other memories? And how did you know, mm -hmm. like, oh, I've reached a point of mm -hmm. integration. This looks like other memories now. Yeah. So I'll start actually there with the, with the end of your question, which is how do we know when we've integrated something? So I can talk now about my father's death. We could talk about this for a half an hour, um, I, which means I'm pulling out the file. I could tell the story about his life. I could tell the story about the way that he died, um, what the impact was immediately on the family, my mother's death soon after, all that. Um, and I will feel some of the emotional content. If I go into great depth about who my father was or what the morning was like when he passed away, I might tear up a little bit. I will certainly feel sad. Um, but I can put that file folder away as soon as you change the subject and continue talking about whatever else, however else the conversation goes. Um, and so that's I, I know when a, when a memory is integrated, when you can pull it to the front of your mind feel the emotional content, tell the story, and then put it back with relative ease. Um, how did I get there with the death of my father? It was a very long process. Um, grief, I think we live in a, in a grief-phobic culture for the most part, and we don't, we don't allow people the space or opportunity to grieve in ways that are helpful. So I think that what is a very long path ends up much longer and more painful than it has to be. I spent the first six months after my father died basically pretending everything was fine. Charge forward, keep working, and that will things will just sort of pace themselves back together. And then six months in, I was completely taken out by panic and started having panic attacks everywhere all the time. 
And I made this sort of hilarious phone call to a therapist. And I said, you know, I, uh, I had this death in, in, in the family and, um, I've, I've been experienced and, you know, everything's fine, but I've been experiencing these panic attacks and, and, and now they're getting in the way of work. So I'd like to do, you know, maybe six or 12 sessions and clear that up. And, um, she told the story much later that she laughed at the phone call because it was so indicative of where I was and what I thought the process was supposed to look like. Yeah. And, and that gets mirrored back by psychology that says, you know, the DSM says you've got six months to grieve. And if you are still grieving after six months, then we, we have to start talking about major depression or prolonged grief disorder. And so I embarked on, um, on a therapy journey that's still going on. I'm still in therapy. Um, and the kind of irony of ironies was that I was writing my master's degree on grief when this happened. Like I had chosen that before my, either of my parents died. And by the time I was finished with it, both of them had died. Um, so I was accessing it from an academic space, which I think was incredibly healing. It showed me that I wasn't alone, that I could access um, difficult emotions and experiences from a place that felt intellectual and therefore safe for me. Um, and then um, going through this process of therapy and really diving into grief and understanding what it feels like, the lived experience. Um, and I don't think it's over, you know, I think that, um, you know, to grieve is to submit unwillingly to a lifelong path of reconciliation that the person that you didn't think was going to be gone is. And so that still comes up. But I think the difference now is that when I, when I experience grief or a wave of grief, I don't worry about it. I don't shame myself. I don't say for the most part, oh my God, I can't believe we're back here again. It's been so many years and I can't believe we're still feeling this and you're not healed and you're never going to be healed. You know, I'm just like, oh, there's a wave. What's, what's this one got, you know? Okay. So that's the integration, if you will, at the narrative yes. level. And you also mentioned the second step, which is mm -hmm. working at the body level, the somatic level. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that and the connection, if you will, between these two levels of trauma healing. Yeah, I think that we don't recognize that our, our because we talk about the mind and the body as if they're two separate things, and we need to, to some extent. Um, but I think we don't really realize that they are in a dynamic unity. So whatever's going on in your brain is going on in your body, and whatever's going on in your body is going on in your brain. And there's been this incredibly slow awakening to that in um, in society and in the Western world. And um, so you can do all of the narrative work and still feel just as bad as if you didn't do any of the narrative work, right? And so you can have, I think, um, a, a somewhat integrated narrative memory, but every time the memory comes up, you have a very outsized response in your body. And so that would look like if I talk about my father with you today, that I cry for the rest of the day. And maybe I can tell a coherent story and I can tell you that there's sadness in there, but the, the somatic piece of it really takes over. And what that suggests is that the body doesn't feel safe in the world yet to experience that emotion, to sustain that, uh, the experience of being hit by that wave and coming back to baseline. And so when you think about how to do that work, um, that's something that can, can happen. There are a lot of modalities that are very helpful when it comes to somatic healing. Um, I'm thinking of Peter Levine's work on somatic experiencing, 
where um, a lot of what he describes is about pendulation. It's about bringing your body into an emotional experience and then bringing your body back out. So you bring yourself into the grief, you feel a little bit of it, and then you're led by a, a clinician or a therapist to, to come back to baseline. And over time, you experience that you are safe to go through that experience of getting hit by that wave. Yoga is another modality that's very helpful because um, Bessel van der Kolk has said that it helps you learn how to come home to your body, which I love. I think um, when we have a fragmented narrative, often the the reverberation of that in our body is that the body thinks it's not safe. And, and what's even weirder is that probably everything in, in your outside world is safe. So you cognitively know that, but your body is having this response. You're triggered and you're at work and you're panicked, but you're saying to yourself, I'm at work, what's happening? Pull yourself together. And the experience, the practice of yoga, where you come, you know, you connect breath with movement and notice how you're feeling through different poses can help you learn how to kind of land back in your body, come back home to your body, which then in turn helps you experience those waves with less struggle. Now, MC, one, one of the things I want to check out with you, listening to you now, is sometimes I've heard people say, look, you know, if you don't work at the level of the body, at the level of the stored memories, you're not going to really make any progress when it comes to trauma healing. And they're dismissive, if you mm -hmm. will, mm -hmm. of a more narrative approach. Like I've told the story to a therapist. I've been yeah. talking to a therapist. I've gone over and over it. Nothing's changing. But what I hear you saying, this is what I want to check out, is that both approaches actually work together mm -hmm. and perhaps even that we need both. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I absolutely think we need both. I think we need to work holistically when it comes to trauma, again, because it's not the case that it only happens to your psyche. It's not the case that you have a problem within your psychology somewhere that your body's not involved in. Your body is along for the ride. And so um, you can work, I think if you're, I encourage clients often and, and people that I'm talking to, if you feel more comfortable working narratively first, start there. And if you feel more comfortable working somatically first, start there. But just know that at some point, those, those two things have to meet in order for you to really get to your full level of, of recalibration. Now, I want to also talk just a little bit more here about this connection between loss, grief, mm. and trauma. Because I think I've, I've had this notion that there's something like healthy grief, or that's a reasonable mm -hmm. grieving process or something, which is a really bizarre sentence to even say. And mm -hmm. then there's traumatic grief, like a sudden loss, and that these are different in, mm -hmm. in some way. And I'm curious what your view is of that, the relationship between trauma and just grieving the losses in our life, mm -hmm. of which we all have so many. That's a great question. I And I have to say, before I start, that that this is something that I'm I'm constantly evolving in my own life because I think about loss maybe more than anything else. Um, because to be in relationship is to be in a, in a situation where you have a potential loss. So even when it isn't present for you immediately and urgent, it's still kind of hanging out around there as a possibility. And so, um, so I may change my, my tune on this at, at some point, but I, I don't think that you can have a loss that isn't traumatic. And I know that sounds maybe um, like an exaggeration, but I don't think 
So if we think about the definition of trauma, the definition of trauma that I use is when you have an unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home, and we can unpack that later. But um, when we think about the experiences in our lives that meet the criteria for unbearability, I think loss may be the first and most common thing that comes to mind. Because even in cases where we have prepared cognitively for a loss, we know that it's coming, someone has lived a long and healthy life and they've contributed and they are reconciled with their own death and, and things like that, the brain still has this incredible job of remapping without that person. And the grieving process and the mourning process has to happen, which involves kind of imagining and understanding and encountering all of the ways that you thought someone was going to be in your life and kind of cutting that off, realizing that that's not true, that's not going to happen. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's probably a scale. There are some losses that are far more traumatic than others. I'm not sure that we have loss that isn't traumatic. Does that... Square. It does. You know, I think the, the question I have about this uh, definition of traumatic experience that you're mm -hmm. offering, unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home. I think the part about having a relational home, I can understand mm -hmm. uh, and appreciate. Like that means I can share it with you. I can talk about it. It belongs. It belongs with myself. Mm -hmm. I can be with it. Other people. So I get that part. Yep. It's what is unbearable mm -hmm. emotional experience because obviously I'm bearing it. Right. It's right. excruciating, but I'm right. bearing it. What does that word unbearable mean? The, the, I love this question because that's the link between the mind and the body, right? So we, in, in a sense, I love the word because it, uh, it, it just, the word unbearable does so much work for exactly that reason. Um, we, we know, we think that we have borne something because time has gone by. And we've moved on. Yeah. And, I, and I, I made it through. I, right. I made it through. I'm here. Right. We've, yeah, I, I'm still going to work. I'm making sense. Things are, things are okay. I've, I've borne it. But your nervous system, if it's still responding as if that experience is present, has not borne the experience. And so that's the thing that has to get um, worked on in order for you to really get through that initial process. How do we know if our nervous system is experiencing something as unbearable? How do we know? We have to learn how to become, um, how to be in tune with the barometer that is our body. And I think we live in a culture that separates us from our body. We think the mind and the body are distinct. We think we can manage everything that's going on in the body and that that's part of our role, that the seat of the subject is sort of up here in the, in the brain and that the mind is sort of an afterthought and... It has annoying things that need to be coped with sometimes. And, and it's our job to kind of manage it and quash that. And I think what we miss out on then is that our body is constantly giving us information about how it is experiencing what we are cognitively experiencing. And those two things can be very different. So cognitively, I can think, well, this isn't a big deal. You know, I've, I've, I've dealt with the fact that my father died. It's, it's, it happens, right? Which was very much where I was in those first six months. My body on the other hand, was experiencing any fluctuation in the external world or inside my body as a threat of death. 
you are going to die. You have just seen that your father has died unexpectedly. Everyone you love is going to die. They're going to die unexpectedly and immediately and in front of you, right? Um, that's a huge sign that my body has not integrated what I think I have cognitively integrated. And so I think when we turn into the, when we tune into the channel that our body is on, that tells us all this information, then we can learn that, um, that it, again, it's, I keep saying this, but it's along for the ride and it has its own experience of that. And so we can think that we're cognitively over something and, and we're not. The temporality of unbearability, I think is really interesting as well, because I think sometimes we sort of slap a bandaid on something and think that that means we've, we've healed, right? And, and in some sense it's true, except when there's a festering infection underneath the bandaid that will eventually make itself known and could be fatal. Um, there were all there were all of these research studies, and, and there's a lot of work on Holocaust survivors who who um, die by suicide years later, forty years later. And there's this kind of um, very common expression of like, oh well, you know, Primo Levi was successful; he was an amazing writer, and and he died by suicide, how, you know, forty or something years later, forty two years later. How can that be? And I think it's because sometimes what feels like it is bearable is getting heavier over time. And, you know, I can hold a two pound weight for this whole conversation. I can probably physically manage that. And at the beginning of the conversation, the two pound weight is going to feel very manageable. At minute 40, I'm going to be feeling like that, that two pound weight is 40 pounds. And I think the same thing is true with uh, with emotional experience, just because time has gone by and we are still here does not mean that we have done the work of bearing the difficult emotions. What's your suggestion to someone who's listening to this and they're like, God, you know, I know there are times I can tell my body is having a response of whether it's hypervigilance or anxiety or uh, I'm not okay. I get that, but I don't mm -hmm. quite know what the trigger is. I don't really know what's going on. I don't know what I don't have the associated narrative in this moment to even know. That's. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think one of the one of the main misconceptions about triggers is that we always are cognitively aware of them. Like we talk about them as if we know what they are, and that's not true. Triggers are often buried deep in the unconscious. Um, and we're not conscious of them. And so the first stage is this awareness of like, oh, I'm feeling discomfort. And that discomfort could come, could be coming from a trigger. How do I figure out what that is? Um, the first thing I think is to turn up that awareness as far as it can go. So um, you're noticing discomfort. What does that discomfort look like? You mentioned anxiety. What, how does that anxiety take shape? Journal that, write it down, and then try to, if it feels comfortable to you, um, think about where that feeling has appeared in your life before then. So, oh, I'm feeling really anxious and, and that anxiety looks like a stomach ache. And for some reason I can remember having this same kind of stomach ache when I was six and I was humiliated for the first time in front of my class, right? Then you start to draw the connections. Um, this is work that is always great to do with a trusted person, whether that's a therapist or someone who has your best interest in heart and knows you well, and who can help you come back to baseline if you get panicked and overwhelmed in the telling. Um, but I think to go back to, to triggers and kind of two other really quick misconceptions, um, 
we think that if we have a trigger, this is a sign that we we should avoid something for the rest of our lives. So I think sometimes we think the work is done when, when I say, okay, I'm triggered by the smell of spaghetti sauce. And so, cool. I just don't have spaghetti for the rest of my life. That's not that big of a deal. But triggers are signs that something needs to be worked on and integrated. Even if you feel like you've worked on it and integrated it, this is a sign that it continues to need to be worked on and integrated. And that's not a failure on your part. That's a testament to the miracle of your adaptive brain and body. And then the last thing is we think we've healed when we feel nothing. So we think, okay, I'll know that, that my trigger is all set when I don't have it in, anymore at all. And that's not, that's not how our memory files work. The truth is that our memory files contain emotional content and they're supposed to. And so the spaghetti um, sauce example is actually a real one for me. For about five or six years, I could not handle the smell of spaghetti sauce. It would make me instantly nauseous. And I, I had no idea about why. I didn't get like a stomach flu from that. I had never been sick from that. I didn't, it just was completely random. And then out of nowhere, one day, probably five or six years after my father's death, I remembered that... Um, Spaghetti with meat sauce was the last thing that he ate. And so my adaptive, amazing, brilliant little body was coding spaghetti sauce as mortal danger, right? And so it was like, oh, this huge realization of this is why I have been nauseous from that. Okay, this needs to be integrated. And then I have to tell my, my poor little body, like, it wasn't the spaghetti sauce. <laughs> spaghetti sauce doesn't equal death. And, and, oh, that's so scary for you. And kind of turn to yourself and hold that as true and valid part of your experience. And then, you know, going back to pendulation, can you try spaghetti sauce? Can you smell it and see if it still makes you nauseous now that you have this sort of re-education process in your head? Okay, could you try to eat it? What does that feel like? Um and kind of wander into that experience to give yourself the opposite experience. You can eat spaghetti sauce and not not die. That's a very silly example, but um, illustrative, hopefully. Tell me, MC, this definition that you offered us about trauma, unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home. Tell me why you like that definition so much. I think, um, so one of the things when I first started studying trauma that I was really shocked about was that we were still having an argument about which things, about what trauma was. I thought, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to go to this trauma conference. I'm going to figure out what trauma is. I'm going to pull that into my dissertation, clean and done. Um, and I went to the trauma conference and everyone was arguing about which kind of events are trauma, which kinds are not, what does that mean? And I was just flabbergasted by that. And the the I'd say that because there's, on either end of the spectrum, there's a compelling argument. And one is that if we count every kind of event as potentially traumatic, then we kind of stretch the word trauma to the point of meaninglessness. And it doesn't really matter anymore because everyone's traumatized by everything and it's kind of like the common cold. We don't really need to think about that. We don't need to study that. It's part of life. And I think that's a real concern. The concern on the other side is that if we don't get the definition correct, clinically, we are going to miss it when people are coming in and having the symptoms of trauma. We're going to misdiagnose and mistreat and this, you know, sometimes to somebody's, to someone's peril in one way or another. And there's this belief, I always go to these conferences and I sort of laugh at like how, um, how pessimistic the view of human nature can be in academic spheres. 
I think we're fully capable of finding a definition in the middle of those two extremes. And I think that the the one that I have adapted from a clinician, Robert Stolero, unbearable emotional experience that lacks relational home, does a lot of that work. Because what it says is not everything can count as traumatic, right? You have to meet the criteria of unbearability. And so if you have a negative experience that's upsetting in one way or another, that's true and valid and worthy of looking at. But does it actually meet the criteria? Does it meet the bar, the high bar of unbearability? No? Okay. That's good to know, right? Um, and it also has a great um, correlate to the neuroscience because when we look at what's going on in the brain and the body, um, when you are sufficiently overwhelmed, the, the brain processes that you need to cognitively understand and file away your experience get shut down adaptively so that you can be better prepared to handle threat. Um, so I like that unbearability piece because it does work in a lot of different ways societally and also kind of maps onto the neuroscience beautifully. And the relational home piece I think is really interesting because it helps us understand without pathologizing the individual who's traumatized, what makes something more likely to become lasting trauma. And, um, a lot of the re some of the research that I've done and also research that has been done um, has shown that when you have someone to share the really difficult, overwhelming emotions with right away, you are far less likely to develop the symptoms of lasting trauma. And so there is something about traumatic experience that actually has nothing to do with the type of experience and nothing to do with the nervous system on which it lands and everything to do with the community surrounding that individual. Now, you also write that you are not invested in this distinction that I've heard a lot of psychologists and other people in the trauma field refer to, something called big T and little t. You don't, you don't seem to think this is a valid distinction, a worthy distinction? No. Explain what, what, what are people saying about big T and little t, and why do you say this distinction is not important? So the, the distinction comes from the clinical world, and I think there are many ways in which psychology is a really interesting field. Um, since psychological truths affect all of us so deeply, we all go reaching for, for access to information about it. And we get, and this is great, we get access to clinical information, but we don't get the context often enough. And so um, if I understand correctly, the, the distinction between big T and little t trauma actually kind of got into the, the clinical world because of Francine Shapiro's work. She's the founder of EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And at the time when she developed that modality, they were working with um, what they called simple traumas, singular traumatic events that they thought this modality would be helpful in integrating. And so EMDR works by um, occupying your visual cortex while you talk through, or your your embody or your body, while you talk through a traumatic event, and helps you kind of reorganize that file. So it's somatic and narrative at the same time. And um, she had gotten funding for working with singular traumatic events. She thought, and she wrote this in her textbook, "Hey, I think that this modality might actually work for traumas that are a little bit more ambiguous." a little bit more vague, traumas that occur over the course of a period of time and are not necessarily recognized as big T traumas. 
little t traumas like being bullied at school was for example might cause the same set of symptoms and those symptoms might also be mediated by this modality and so she was trying to advocate f- to level the playing field so that we could see that the body is imprinting all traumatic experiences the same whether it's bullying on the schoolyard or a catastrophic assault and she was right the EMDR is effective in in both ways and instead of of taking that as, okay, now we can level the the playing field and we can all talk about trauma and say, okay, your trauma is different than mine and unique in certain ways, but our bodies are imprinting trauma in the same way in either case. Instead of that, we take the language and we twist it. And we say, well, I don't have big T trauma, so my experience doesn't count. And, and I don't have, or, or I'll say to someone, I see this in clients actually, and this is where it's really destructive. One, one, client, one, you know, one member of a couple will have, you know, widely recognized big T trauma. They've been deployed. They had an alcoholic parent, right? They've had some widely recognized traumatic things. And the other member of the couple maybe has had, had a 10 year verbally abusive relationship and their trauma is not recognized in the couple because it's not quote unquote capital T trauma. That's really corrosive. And so I think we need to understand that, like, yes, traumatic experiences are all in some sense unique and different. And the parts of the brain that are registering overwhelm are not sophisticated enough to say, oh, this fear is just from being bullied, or this fear is from this 10-year verbally abusive relationship. That fear is a big one. It doesn't do that. And so why are we, you know, instilling this distinction that isn't there? Okay, so let me just check this out with you once yeah. again. So if I understand you correctly, if we drop the distinction between big T and little t, then we're coming more from the inner experience of mm-hmm. was this unbearable in some yep. way? Did my body freak out and did it not become cataloged like a memory, but instead right. was this disorganized thing? And if that happened, it's trauma. Don't don't say what size the T is. That's exactly. not the important thing. Okay, right. well, that's, that's very helpful. There's a, there's a study in the book that's, um, you know, all the, all the stories, as you said, are composites. So this is, is one person's story and many person's story where I had a client who came in um, who had all the symptoms for PTSD, but the thing that was the quote unquote big T trauma in her life wasn't the thing that was causing the symptoms. It was a very shocking breakup that she had had. And, um, and she was missing, she was about to quit her job, and change, which she loved, and, and change her life in, in ways that were unnecessary because nobody was pointing out that the thing might be something else in her life and that it's okay. Sometimes a breakup is, is shattering. You know, it depends on the context and the story. And so that could be the thing that you're responding to. And if so, you know, it's really important to treat that thing at its source. Okay. MC, I'm going to talk to you about the insight from the book that for me hit me the most emotionally and was the most profound for me. And it had to do in the very beginning as we were talking and you said when something traumatic happens, our our whole entire sense of how we think the world's supposed to operate can unravel. And you talk about how sometimes when we become very in tune with a certain type of vulnerability, how vulnerable we are in a situation. It it suddenly connects us to 
ultimate vulnerability, extreme vulnerability, how uncertain everything is. And before you know it, it's, you know, it's hard to to get up and make a cup of coffee. It's hard to do anything really. And I wonder if you can share some how your actual work with clients and your research shows this connection between trauma and ultimate vulnerability. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. This this part I think is probably the the part of the work that's nearest and dearest to me because it's reflective of my own experience. I think that you know we were talking earlier about what sets of beliefs shatter. I, I think that we do a lot of work to box in our vulnerability and to think that we are, you know, yeah, we're vulnerable. We like to use that word now. And so we'll, we'll bring it around and say we're vulnerable emotionally with each other and we have intimacy and we connect and all this other stuff. But I think we try really hard to not look at the, you know, radical vulnerability that is underneath everything, you know, like a root system that's underneath all of our experiences, all of our desires, all of our relationships. And when we've had a traumatic experience, I think it brings us unwillingly face to face with the fact that we are vulnerable and there's nothing we can do about it. And I mean, radically vulnerable, not vulnerable. Like I might share something with you that you then turn and betray me about. I mean, I might connect to you, we might become entangled, and I might lose you. And then I don't even know how to give an account of what I've lost because we are entangled. And part of who I am is now gone because you're gone. And I don't know how to account for that. What have I lost? The whole thing starts to unravel. Um, and I think that we there are there are people who haven't experienced that. And so they live in 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 denial of it. And I think once you have experienced it you can't deny it anymore. It's a truth that is, you can't unknow. And um, I think a lot of traditional therapy models don't address that. Don't stand at the edge with somebody and say, yeah, you are radically vulnerable. That has always been true. That will always be true. And there's nothing you can do about it. And the reason that most traditional models don't, don't do that is that it sounds really dire. But I think if we really can sit in that feeling and that experience, and trust me, I understand how hard this is, we can gain access to a beauty in that vulnerability that is wildly expansive and can change and add color to the rest of our lives in ways that are amazing and beautiful. You know, I think more people perhaps are in touch with this now, mm-hmm. post-pandemic, and the sense that so many things can happen that we don't have control over with the climate crisis impacting us the way that it is, gun violence, so many different things. There's this sense of, will I and my children and my family and those I love wake up safe tomorrow? Don't know don't know. So what do you know from your work with people about what gives us the inner strength, the inner capacity to live with that awareness and not be in a traumatized state, but to be grounded and resourceful and calm, knowing that we and those we love might not wake up tomorrow? Yeah, I think that... um 
you know, like I said, it's a daily battle. And I think there are days and moments that really amplify the anxiety there. And I think we've seen that as a culture. I don't think we have even begun to integrate the pandemic on a global level. Um, and that's a reckoning that that is coming, which is one of the reasons why it's so important that we all get on the same page about trauma. Um, but when it comes to, you know, how do you live with it? I think that it's, you, you kind of have to take the, the mindset of it, of existentialism, right. Which is a philosophical movement that says, look, life has no meaning, whether you're religious or not, you're not going to get a post-it note from anywhere that says, this is your path. And this is what life means. And that's the beginning of the story, not the end. Because what that means is that you are radically responsible for your life and what you create and the legacy that you leave. And there's an incredible subversive power in that, in the recognition that there might not be any meaning. And therefore, because of that, I am going to paint my canvas in a totally unique way, a totally intentional way, totally authentic way, um, because there's no meaning that's going to float down. And I could be, you know, taken out at any moment. Um, I think that that is what's different now is this idea that we we don't know what kind of legacy there's going to be anymore because of, you know, the, the I think we're really on a societal level finally reckoning with the idea that there might be an end. And so it's not just that, we might pass away or that our grandparents or our grandchildren won't survive or something like that, but that there will be no humanity. And, and what then? And I think we're kind of staring down the barrel of that terror, which, which adds more urgency, frankly, to, to what we do here. What, what does it mean if there isn't going to be a legacy? And I don't know how to answer that, but I think that the first step is to stand in it and say, yep, that's, that's real. That's here. Now what? And when you talk about the urgency you feel about this new updated understanding of trauma helping us during this time, can you mm. help connect that for me? How will it help us here where we are right now at this time? I think if we can understand better our trauma response, how it works biologically, just in, in, a, in general, if we can get this out to the world and people can really understand what's happening, then we can suffer a, lo a lot less individually. And I also think we can, when we understand what a relational home is and that this is something that can be incredibly healing in, in the face of trauma, we can provide it for one another. One of the scariest things that I see that I get really nervous about is this idea that you can't talk about trauma unless you're in the, the, the closed four walls of a therapist's office. Because I think while that's incredibly important, and that's, I've, as I've said, in my own process and will continue to be, we also heal in relation to everyone in our lives. And if we can understand what it means to provide a relational home to one another, then we can heal as a community, as a global community, instead of continuing to add insult to injury by having traumatic events happen and then failing to help each other integrate them. So I think the first step in this, there's many, is to understand without shame what is happening when we're traumatized. And then the second step is to figure out, okay, what, what then does the integration process look like and how can we all help each other out? When you say provide a relational home 
not in a therapist's office, but to the people in our lives, our family members, our, our friends. Tell me more what that means. I know sometimes when I'm talking to people and I I really do my darndest to listen and attune, and but then I feel a little helpless and a little like I, I, I wonder how much I helped and mm. you know, I held the space, but like what does it actually mean? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think that um, when we feel like we have to do all the work ourselves, we're doomed. Right. If I have to have a relational home and and hold it and and I have to be the single relational home for you, then that's that's doomed because there will be moments where, yeah, I can attune, but there will be moments where I fail to understand or I have something else going on in my life. And so I'm not as present. So I can't be as attuned. And um, but I think that um when I when I teach, when I talk about my college about this with my college students, they get very frustrated about the the concept of relational home. What, you know, what the hell does that mean, Professor McDonald? I don't understand what that is. What's a relational home? You're being vague again. You like pretty words, but they don't mean anything. And um, I ask them what, what their protocol is when a friend of theirs goes through a breakup. And instantly they're like, oh, no problem. First we do this. We go over to the house, we cry, we eat ice cream, then we delete the person's phone number and make sure to block them on social media. And then we go out and we have fun and we watch these movies and blah, blah, blah. blah. They have a whole protocol set up for when their friends go through something difficult. I think to a large extent, we know how to do this already. We turn ourselves into weirdos by second guessing it. And then when we're weird in relation to other people, that you know gets in the way of a relational home. Um, I think that, as you mentioned, attunement and connection and holding space are critical. I also think that honesty is really important. Um, when I was first working with, I did a, a lot of research with... Um, my partner, Gary Senecal, and we were working with veterans. And we were both really shocked at how often veterans would turn to me and say, oh, MC, you get it. And I, was, I would say like, no, no, I, I don't actually, I haven't been deployed. I don't, I don't get it. What do you mean? Um, and we did some follow-up research on that. And it turned out that one of the things that, that made a relational home possible was someone's willingness to say, I don't understand that experience you had, but I know what it's like to feel trapped. And for me, that felt like this. What did it feel like for you? So the ability to explain to someone who precisely does not know what you've been through enables you to communicate, to really organize the memory file in your head and also feel heard by someone else who hasn't been through what you've been through. And that, I think, is a tremendous, tremendous help. All right. To end, MC, I'm going to ask if you'll share with our listeners, one of the composite stories that you describe in Unbroken that really moved me. It's the story of Gabe. And mm-hmm. I think the, the reason I'd love for you to share this story is we touched on this notion of ultimate vulnerability and how we're going to go ahead and keep functioning in our lives. And I think mm-hmm. the story of Gabe really illustrates this. And I'd love to know kind of where you and Gabe ended up that gave Gabe the ability to do this. So go ahead and share that story. Yeah. So Gabe, um, Gabe was someone whose, um, father died of a heart attack in front of him, um, when he was very young. So this is obviously a traumatic event. Um, and then to contribute to that, Gabe inherited the same cardiovascular issue that would mean that he could potentially have a heart attack very young and die. And so as a result, he had a defibrillator, um, implanted in his chest to make sure that that didn't happen. So life-saving surgery, what a wonderful thing that your father had this thing that you recognized you have 
and now you're able to to survive the the trick the irony which and this this maps on to the trauma response in such interesting ways was that the defibrillator in his chest that's designed to keep him alive sometimes malfunctions and when that happens it's called an electrical storm i think when that happens it would send gabe it would you know the defibrillator would shock him when it didn't need to and so that would send him sometimes careening across the room and could also kill him so as a result he became incredibly hypervigilant to his own fluctuations in his heartbeat which most of us kind of don't notice if you don't have anxiety or you've never really thought about your heartbeat, you don't really pay attention to the fluctuations, but you can tune in and become hyper attuned to those fluctuations. And so that was where he was at. And he couldn't tell the story without getting activated and having his heart rate go up. He couldn't go to the gym. He was having trouble leaving his house. Like it was becoming, his life was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so we went through this process of remembering the death of his father, kind of reliving that, working through that memory, um, talking through the experience of the defibrillator malfunctions, which were each traumatic experiences of their own, and then working on bottom-up regulation, which is where you regulate your nervous system using your body by sort of manually turning on the rest and digest part of the nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system. And we did um, a whole bunch of breathing exercises and did those every single day until Gabe started to feel like he had mastery over his nervous system and therefore over his heart rate and therefore over his life. So even just that tiny little bit of, um, of, mastery over himself made a huge difference. He can't control whether the malfunctions happen again, but the way that he exists in his body today is wildly different than it was before. And you make this point and you're referring to it here, these tiny actions of mastery that it doesn't have to be some big global shift that even when we do these tiny things, it can really change our inner perception. I wonder if that might be a good note for us to end on, the tiny things we can do that make a big difference. Yeah. the the I think we get the calculus wrong and it makes so much sense, but we, we think that if we have a big bad thing, then we need a big good thing to counter it. If we have a big response in our body, then we need total control over our body. And that's not true in either case. Um, tiny little joys can anchor you in the midst of incredible loss and tiny little exercises that you do every day can make you feel completely different in your own body. And so breathing exercises, one of the other exercises in the book that I talk about is Tetris, which helps you regulate your um, nervous system from the top down from your brain to your body, um, by occupying your prefrontal cortex through a game. These things are tiny. Playing Tetris for 20 minutes a day is a very small thing, but it can really decrease your anxiety response. And I think every time we, we find a tool, I love to, to think about empowering clients and students and readers to have a whole toolbox full of things that helps them regulate their nervous systems. Every time we have access to a tool and we learn how to use it, we get this incredibly empowering feeling that we have a say. We can't change the default responses in our, in our body, nor would we want to. We need the trauma response because it helps keep us alive. But we can intervene on those processes once they kick off. And every time we get a tool and we see that that works, there's this huge blast of empowerment that helps us feel at home in our bodies. 
And so I think when we can kind of gather these little things, they actually turn, turn into something much, much bigger. Now, I have to ask a follow-up question about Tetris. Who yes. would have thought a video game was going to help me uh, retrain myself in relationship to trauma? You would think that it was a escape approach, not, know, you know, yeah. that that's like a numbing out escape thing, but you're describing it in a different way. So I think this is an important idea to clarify. Yes, Tetris, and this is something, this isn't just me. Um, there have been many fMRI studies, functional magnetic resonance imaging studies, where they're looking at blood flow in the brains of people that have PTSD, where they will show the person something that they know, a stimulus that they know will trigger, you know, an anxiety response. They will have them play 20 to 40 minutes of Tetris, and then they watch the brain regulate. So the reason that that works is because um, when you have a traumatic event or you have a traumatic stimulus that's coming into your environment, your brain, your whole brain reprioritizes its function in order to better uh, adapt to that threat or that perception of threat. And so one of the things that happens is you get a whole bunch of energy and blood flow pulled away from the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of your rational brain. It's where working memory is. It's right behind your, your eyes, right behind your visual cortex. And um, so when you play Tetris, which makes a continuous bid on your prefrontal cortex, you are manually pushing blood flow and electrical activity into the part of the brain that just got disconnected. Now, when it comes to this idea of numbing, I think we, we really need to get clear on what that means because I'm seeing this so often. It's not numbing if it's regulating. If you are playing Tetris for 14 hours a day, then we should look at whether that's numbing and, and what's happening there. But if you're playing Tetris for an hour every night and it's helping you get to sleep sooner and feel, you know, appropriately disconnected from your day, then that's that's healing, you know? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I think a lot of people find things regulating, like I find working very mm -hmm. regulating to work. Mm -hmm. And when is that avoidance? And when is that, oh, that's healthy regulation? How do we know the difference? I think I, I'm laughing because I relate so much. And, and for me, I think working uh, often crosses the boundary into numbing and, and, and an unhealthy coping. And I think the way that I see that is that it starts to dysregulate me. And so I'll notice that in my body, if I'm paying attention, that I'm not actually feeling, um, you know, the sense of accomplishment and positive contribution to the world or whatever, I'm feeling actually more overwhelmed in my body. That's a sign that, that working has gone too far. Um, and the other sign is that it will start to interrupt your life right? Like anything. Um, it will start to get in the way of work, your concentration, your relationships. You're maybe doing not doing other things that you used to love because you are working too much. And that's, that's a sign. So those are the two things for me. But I think to some extent, it depends. You know, we have to look at what our horizon typically looks like and understand what dysregulation looks like for us, because it might be slightly different. I have to say, I enjoy talking to you so much. It's so okay. rare to meet someone who has the kind of uh, academic chops that you have and talent and also deep feeling nature, all wrapped in one uh, kind, caring person. And oh, you've you. written a gorgeous and helpful book. It's called Unbroken, The Trauma Response is Never Wrong and Other Things You Need to Know to Take Back Your Life. It's a gift at this time that you've put this book into the world and poured yourself into it. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an honor to, to talk to you. 
I've been talking with Mary Catherine McDonald, the author of Unbroken, The Trauma Response is Never Wrong. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in after-the-show Q&A conversations with featured presenters and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community that features premium shows, live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.